Well, brothers and sisters, I am very glad to be with you, bring you greetings from Reformation OPC, your brothers and sisters just down the road. And uh, yeah, I'm very glad to be here. It's always wonderful to see brothers and sisters who are of like mind worshiping, uh, even in my own area. And so uh, let's open the word of God this morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 44. If you've been to Sunday school, if you've been around the church for a while, you know this story. And I want to mine its riches with you today. So hear the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns, and they got there ahead of them. And he went ashore, and he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. It alone is inspired and infallible and inerrant truth. And to it alone can we look for direction in life's darkest hours and for hope and for peace. We pray that you would speak to us through it today. In your son's name, amen. We don't often find ourselves in truly desolate places, do we? I think the closest I've ever been to a truly desolate place is the middle of the Great Basin in Nevada. It's an arid salt flat, and through the Great Basin runs Route 50. It's called the loneliest highway in America, and for good reason. There is nothing out there. No trees, no towns, no houses. There are some UFO hunters, and that's about it. Theoretically, you could drive for 16 hours on Route 50 without ever going around a corner. But every 100 miles, there is a gas station, and you stop no matter what. Because to run out of gas in the middle of the Great Basin is a serious deal. I mean, it could be hours before somebody else comes by. There's no trees to shade you from the desert sun. To run out of supplies 
in a desolate place is a serious matter. Today we come to a passage in which Jesus' followers find themselves out in a desolate place without supplies. And Jesus miraculously supplies their physical needs. He gives them food. As we'll see, though, this text in Mark's gospel is about far more than just Jesus supplying the physical needs of his people. You see, this is a passage in which Jesus demonstrates his total trustworthiness to us, his church. It's about Jesus himself, then, not simply what he does. You see, while the story itself is simple and the idea that he can provide for us is clear just from our simple reading of it, There's a lot more going on here than we might catch at first glance. This is a story about Jesus in what we call his threefold office, or his three jobs as prophet and priest and king. This is a story about the ways in which Jesus fulfills all of these shadows of the Old Testament. It's a story ultimately about how Jesus establishes and builds his kingdom and how we can know that he is totally worthy of our trust and our worship. You see, because of his threefold office, we can trust Jesus' rule and his word and his sacrifice as totally sufficient to flourish his kingdom. My dear friends, this life has a way of sucking the cool water of spiritual vitality out of our souls. We look around and we're dismayed by a turbulent and aggressively pagan culture. But then we look inside of ourselves and the situation only gets worse, right? We find that we actually love the world. The devil is quick to remind us of that fact. We become even more dismayed. It would be easy to despair if not for Jesus Christ. And so I want to simply encourage you today. Encourage and strengthen your souls with this demonstration of Jesus' power to prosper his kingdom. So we begin today by looking at Jesus' first role in this text. Our first point, Jesus is our shepherd king, and so we can trust his rule. He's our shepherd king. What does it mean to say that Jesus is a shepherd king, though? Aren't these two things total opposites, right? A a shepherd works out in the field with the dirty animals. A king lives in a palace, rules a nation. How can one be both? Well, it's certainly true that uh, in the ancient world, especially in the ancient Near East where Israel is located, uh, a shepherd was sort of the bottom tier of society. Your average one of the male shepherd is nothing like the king. But the paradigmatic, the great shepherd of the Old Testament is David. And David is quite an individual He kills a lion and a bear to protect his sheep. He's the giant slayer who takes out Goliath. He's also a poet who writes songs to soothe his skittish animals at night. He's this caretaker par excellence, this delicate balance of strength and courage on the one hand and tenderness and care on the other But as you know, David doesn't stay a shepherd forever. He's also the great Old Testament king of Israel. Now, kings in ancient Israel were not supposed to be like what we might think of as a king. Deuteronomy 17 makes this very clear. What we read in Deuteronomy 17 is that a king of Israel is not supposed to, for instance, uh, gather a large cavalry, a sign of military might. He's not supposed to amass gold and wealth even. He's not supposed to take many wives, a sign of privilege. These are all things that your average 
ancient king does, and it's a sign of his authority. But not so with the Israelite kings. Priority number one, according to Deuteronomy 17, for an Israelite king is to write down his own copy of God's law and to read it day and night that he might not grow arrogant, that he might not accrue authority to himself that doesn't belong to him, that he might not lead the nation astray into idolatry. King of Israel is supposed to be a trajectory setter, right? The nation of Israel are basically a nation of human sheep. They wander all over the place. They're never faithful, and they need somebody to keep guiding them back to the path that they're supposed to be following, and that's the king's job. He's a moral trendsetter more than anything. He's a shepherd of the nation's well-being. Can you see, then, the similarity between the Old Testament's idea of a shepherd on the one hand and a king on the other? Kings are supposed to be a lot like shepherds. Shepherds are a lot like kings. So when I say that Jesus is our shepherd king, this is what I mean. And what I mean is that he rules his people, but he does so not with a fist of iron, but by caring for and guiding and protecting them. Now in our passage, Mark shows us that Jesus is exactly this type of person. To see this, though, we need to look at the broader context of Mark chapter 6. You see, Mark likes to employ a stylistic tool. Today we call it a Markin sandwich, which is a strange term, but it basically means this. It means Mark will start a story, and he'll end a story, but in the middle, he'll put something in that seems completely unrelated. And so it's like a sandwich, right? Two pieces of bread, one on top, one on bottom, something completely unrelated in the middle. And it can break up the flow of the reading, and sometimes you wonder, Mark, why have you done this? For instance, in chapter 6, he starts by talking about Jesus sending out the disciples Right? The fields are white for harvest. There, are, uh, there is a, a kingdom to be announced. He sends them out with nothing but the clothes on their backs. says, don't take bread even. Just go and announce the coming of the kingdom. And so they go out. And in our passage, at the end of Mark chapter 6, how does it start? It starts with the disciples returning to him. That's a neat little story. But in the middle, Mark decides to interpose this story about King Herod, the awful king of Israel, and how he has John the Baptist slain. Why would Mark break up the story with this talk about Herod? Well, he's doing this to highlight the wickedness of the king that Israel had at the time. He wants to show us, in stark contrast, what Israel has and what they need. Herod is the furthest thing possible from what's described in Deuteronomy 17. He is selfish and cruel and corrupt and godless. He's the furthest thing imaginable from a shepherd of God's people. But look at what Mark says about Jesus. Jesus is exhausted from his ministry endeavors. The disciples' little missions trip has been so successful that they're now mobbed by new followers. They can't get away even to have a meal. They need a break. There are too many people demanding their attention, and so they go off into a remote location, and what happens when they show up there? Everyone has followed them. Now, this is the point where I would draw the line. These people need to learn to think for themselves. You can't just call me when I'm on vacation. But that's not Jesus' response. Not at all. Look at verse 34. He says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. 
Jesus sees his followers with the eyes of a shepherd. He sees lost and vulnerable and dependent people who followed the crowd out to a desolate place and now they don't have any food. And his greatest desire is to care for them. Later in the story, we read that he has them sit down on the green grass that's oddly specific for Mark. He never gives details like the color of the grass. Why would he do that here? Well, the imagery is of this shepherd who's led his sheep to a place of refreshment and abundance in the middle of a barren wasteland. It's the image of a king who places the needs of his people above his own. Dear Christians, the same shepherd king is the one to whom you have entrusted your soul. He never tires of hearing our needs. He never needs a break from us. He never sends us away. He sees us wander off like dumb sheep into the desert. And instead of getting frustrated because we've done it again, he has compassion on us. So we can rest our souls in the green grass to which he leads us. Now, what is that green grass? Well, it's the abundance of the kingdom which the disciples have just been sent out to announce. It's the new creation which exists in the midst of the old, right? It's this image of something refreshingly abundant and safe and healthy in the midst of a barren wasteland. It's the church, in short. It's the word. It's the fellowship of believers. It's the presence of his Holy Spirit within each of us, giving us faith to rest in him. These are all things that are ours as participants in the kingdom of God, as members of the new creation. We journey through a desolate world, but when we rest in Christ, we know the peace of being one of the sheep of the good shepherd, a subject of the righteous king. So when we submit ourselves to the rule of Jesus, we'll find him to be a good and caring and loving master, one we can trust at all times and in every dark night of the soul. I love the way the old Psalter phrases or paraphrases Psalm 23. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me down to lie in pastures green. He leadeth me the quiet waters by. Jesus is truly a shepherd king, but Mark shows us that he's even more than that. Jesus is also our better prophet, second point, our better prophet, so we can trust his word. Now, sometimes Jesus' followers, I think, get a bad rap, right? Everybody likes to make fun of the disciples. Sometimes it's because they really mess up. But in this instance, honestly, they just want to hear from him. They just want to learn at the feet of this great, better prophet. So they follow him out into the middle of nowhere for a seminar. Now, there are a lot of gifted orders in the church that I can think of. There are people I could listen to all day, unless I had to sit on the hard ground under the desert sun. Clearly, there was something very special about the teaching that Jesus had to offer. And Mark is very clear with us about what that something special is right from the outset in his gospel. In Mark chapter 1, he says that the people were absolutely stunned by the authority with which Jesus taught. They'd never heard anything like it. So in Mark 6, we witness an audience which is captivated by the authoritative teaching of Jesus Christ. You see, he isn't just giving them advice. He isn't giving them maybe his interpretation of a confusing passage. He isn't giving them his opinions. 
Jesus is giving his followers a direct revelatory message straight from God. He's teaching them how to live in the kingdom as only the king himself can dictate. He is teaching them about God as only the second person of the Trinity himself can speak. He, his followers lose track of time because this is not like any sermon that they've heard before. They're listening with such rapt attention that they don't even seem to care about going home for dinner. They're hearing from the first and only prophet to speak God's words with such an authority as could only come from God himself. He's not simply the mouthpiece like every prophet before. He is the actual mouth of God. Mark drops some subtle hints that Jesus is functioning as a prophet in this passage. This imagery of leading a crowd out into the wilderness, having them gather in groups around him as he delivers a word from God, should make us think of who? Of Moses, right? Who leads the nation of Israel out into the wilderness, has them gather by tribe around Mount Sinai as God pronounces his law. Should make us recall even what Moses prayed when he grew concerned that after his death, there would be no one to lead the nation of Israel. Do you remember what he prayed? He says, Lord, I'm concerned because why? The nation of Israel are like sheep without a shepherd. Those are his words, and Mark picks up on that. He's relying on our memory of the great Old Testament prophet, right, to make his point. He's painting a picture of God's people following their great prophet out into the wilderness to hear a word from God. And like Moses, Jesus is leading the people into the promised land. Except this time it isn't a physical promised land. It isn't a single location on earth that is their inheritance. He's leading them into the kingdom of God, a kingdom without earthly borders, a spiritual realm which manifests itself wherever a Christian is to be found. He's leading them into a new era in redemptive history as they pass from the days of shadows and of things foretold into the days of reality when those things come into existence in this earth. They pass from things foretold to things seen and heard, from bondage under the law to freedom under grace. They pass from the former days of the prophets to these latter days in which we have God's Son who speaks with an authority which renews their minds and refreshes their souls. And then Jesus performs this miracle. And again, we think of the prophets, but this time, Elijah and Elisha. You may recall the story of Elijah and the widow's jars of flour and oil, right? First Kings 17. From totally insufficient supplies, the prophet performs this miracle in which the jars of flour and oil just keep producing and they have bread enough to sustain them through the famine. Then there's another account, 2 Kings 4, in which Elisha, uh, with only 20 pieces of bread, feeds 100 men. These Old Testament prophets did some pretty impressive things, and Jesus' followers were, of course, very familiar with these stories. But none of these prophets fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. This is a miracle of unprecedented abundance. Nothing like it has ever happened before. Those other prophets were fine, in other words, but Mark says, Jesus is incredible. 
Jesus produces more life-giving food than any of the prophets before him, and the message that he has for us comes through loud and clear. Between the authority of his teaching, the abundance of his feeding, there is no doubt that this Jesus is a greater prophet than any who has come before. Dear friends, when this prophet speaks to you in his word, his direct revelatory message from God, you can trust him implicitly. It's not just his opinions or his hopes. This is the word of God itself. When he tells you then to take up your cross and to follow him, you can know that he will lead you through the suffering of this life to his home, to our home with him. When he assures you that not one whom the Father has given to him will be lost, then you can know that not your doubts or your sins will ever be enough to snatch you away from him. When he tells you how you should live and worship and speak and act and think, then you can know that that way, it's the best way. Jesus is the better prophet, and so you can trust him with your life. So he's our shepherd king and our better prophet, but he holds one more title still. Jesus is also our great high priest, and so we can trust his provision. He's our great high priest, so we can trust his provision. Now, the priests of the Old Testament had a lot of jobs. They cared for the temple. They carried the Ark of the Covenant. They collected the offering from the people, all important things. But the core responsibility of the priesthood and particularly of the high priest, was to make sacrifices on which the people of Israel depended for the forgiveness of their sins. Without a high priest to make a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement each year, there was no removing the great guilt of sin from upon Israel. This is why modern-day Judaism views itself in a time of exile still. Even though the Jews have been able to re-inhabit the territory which was formerly this promised land, they still have no great high priest making sacrifices to absolve their sins. Since 70 AD, the sins of that people have been piling up as they see it. It's a desperate situation. That is to say then that God's people are so dependent on the high priest to provide atonement for their sins and without the atonement that they need. There's no point, really, to the rest of the priestly work. Who cared if Israel had land or power or prosperity, even, if God could not draw near to them because of the stain of sin which remained? They need a priest. We need a priest to provide the sacrifice which carries our sin away from us. The priest's job, then, ultimately, is one of extremely necessary provision for the people of God. And what could signal that Jesus is a great provider, more than a miracle like this one, right? Having led his people through a barren land to rest in the green grass and to hear his voice, he doesn't then leave them without their most fundamental need. What good is the green grass? What good is this message from the Lord if we die in the wilderness? Certainly that isn't how Jesus functions. He meets their most basic need. This great high priest is showing us that he isn't going to carry out all the secondary responsibilities, but leave us without his main function. So what is it that we really need then? Well, my friends, what we need, as you may have guessed, is not foremost physical bread, but spiritual life. 
We need the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to carry our sins away from us once and for all. We need the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to give us faith and to renew us from the inside out. This is the provision that Jesus makes, and it's totally sufficient for his kingdom to flourish. And when I talk about Jesus' kingdom and its flourishing, it becomes necessary to clarify what I mean. You see, the kingdom of God is closely associated, as we talked about, with the new creation, which the Bible also mentions. It's not like the kingdoms of earth, this kingdom of God. It's not like the kingdoms of the old creation. It has no physical borders, no location on a map. It doesn't even look like the far-reaching influence of what historically was Christendom, or today something like evangelicalism with its voter bases and magazines, cable networks. It doesn't have the hallmarks of influence that the old creation would recognize with its old creation eyes. The kingdom of God only has one thing on this earth. Only one. It has its members. It has you and me. It has the church. Its members which form a body. That is to say that any place where you can find a Christian, you can find an outpost of the kingdom of God. So in order for this kingdom of God to flourish, who needs to flourish? Well, its members do. You and I do. When Jesus promises to build his kingdom, he isn't promising to build some earthly kingdom. He's promising to build its members, which form a body. And we shouldn't be surprised when that flourishing looks different from what the world would recognize as flourishing, because it's not a worldly kingdom. The kingdom of God and its members might not have near the power or the comfort or the influence that they seek, but that doesn't mean that it's King Jesus is failing to provide. It means that he's building his kingdom in ways which the world would never recognize. He's building it in the hearts of his people through the ever-extending reach of the church as he shepherds and teaches it. And perhaps you don't feel like Jesus has been shepherding you personally toward places of rest or teaching you things which resonate with your questions or providing for you in ways that you think you've needed. Perhaps you're even wondering whether you should have followed him so blindly because suddenly reality sinks in at some point in our Christian lives, right? And we wonder whether uh, we should have gone into this without a backup plan in case following Jesus did not work out as well as everybody said it would. Or maybe you just feel like Jesus is distant right now. You agree with everything I've said. You trust him, but he feels distant and uh, you don't know how it applies to you at the moment. It's a very common feeling. Well, may I suggest that uh, perhaps you're looking for Jesus in the wrong places. You see, Jesus gives us his church. He gives us his church. Why? Well, he knows that it's hard to follow a shepherd who we can't see. And so he gives us under shepherds, elders, who rule and guide according to his word. He also knows that it's hard to Trust a prophet who we can't hear, and so he gives us ministers to proclaim God's word with authority and to apply it to our hearts. He knows it's hard to trust a provider who we can't see their checking account. They don't have a food bank, and so he gives us deacons who can distribute what God's people generously give to support one another. And that's all a manifestation, you understand, of Jesus' threefold office. That's all a manifestation of Jesus' rule. 
In particular, it applies to this congregation, I believe, because you're currently without a minister. You understand what ordination is? Right? It's all good and well for me to come here and to preach, and I'm appreciative of the opportunity, and I hope that it's a blessing, but I'm not ordained. And that's a significant difference. Ordination is not something that we bestow on somebody. Ordination is something that God does to an individual. He ordains a minister. What does that mean? It means he delegates his authority. It means he delegates that man's voice to speak to you as if the voice of God from this pulpit. That's what ordination means. If you're not praying actively and regularly that the Lord would bring a minister, you need to start. You need to start because that is an essential function, an essential way in which Jesus rules and cares for his church. It's how Jesus executes his threefold office, and it's how you can know that he cares for you. Look to the people he's appointed to take care of you, and you'll see Jesus making provision. I find it ironic in conclusion that the disciples are so confused when Jesus tells them to give the crowd something to eat. They must not have read Mark chapter 6. They just spent that whole time out on the road with nothing but the clothes on their back, and Jesus sustained them. Right? They left with no money, with no bread, and yet they were still alive. And so Jesus says, give them something to eat. Their minds should be saying, well, the Lord sustained us for all those weeks and months. I guess he'll sustain the rest of his followers now. But no, they, they're a little bit short-sighted. They don't see that. Presumably, as they walked around the countryside and were given bread and meals by these people to whom they were preaching and who were believing and following them, they just saw the, the secondary means, right? They saw the individual, totally ordinary person in front of them, giving them a meal, without ever realizing who it was providing for them. For all those weeks, Jesus had kept them fed. And now he says, you feed them. And then what does he do? He gives them the bread to feed them with. I'd imagine they were kicking themselves, don't you, as they picked up all these leftovers, a whole basket each, 12 baskets to match this number of abundance in the Bible. And of course, the bread wasn't even the real miracle in this, you understand. The real miracle is the crowd. The fact that 12 fishermen and tax collectors and zealots would go out into the countryside to pronounce the coming of a kingdom with no earthly power, no territory, and here they are celebrating, picking up after the first great kingdom feast. That's a miracle. You understand the miracle is the coming of the kingdom. That is story. Through the simple means of his disciples, Jesus had caused a cosmic shift in redemptive history. He had brought in the new creation. Church of Jesus Christ, the fields, even today, are ripe for harvest. The world is a desolate place. People are weary of it. You can see it on their faces. And it's our task to feed them with the gospel, to lead them toward Christ by our way of living, to teach the promises and the hope which are found in his word. And then what do we do? Well, we do the same thing the disciples did. We trust in him to make provision. He'll prosper our endeavors. So let's not waste an hour in this week, which could be used for the good of the kingdom in service to its king. 
remembering always the words of Psalm 126, that those who sow with weeping will harvest with shouts of joy. Amen. Let's pray.